Anyhow, the books. Are you seeing the books? Everything you would want to read is right here. Feel it. Feels good, right? Now smell it. Nothing, nothing smells like that. I'm sorry, excuse me. Did I just see you smell that book? Dear Reader, Season 2. Brought to you by the Fire and Water Podcast Network. and salutations to the inaugural episode of Dear Reader Season 2, a limited series looking at the controversial play The Women by Claire Booth Luce and its three cinematic adaptations. Now, before I can look at those adaptations, I have to look at the source material itself because that's the only way that we can see whether those adaptations are successful, if they follow the law of the women or the spirit of the women, and that is what this episode is all about. Just like the previous season, there won't be any continuity for the show, but this is definitely the jumping on point, and then you can hop around to whichever film that suits your fancy. So I am, in fact, back. So maybe the first question is, why am I back? I mean, I did have a lot of fun with Dear Reader Season 1, a.k.a. Dear Reader Jane Eyre podcast, even though it was quite labor intensive, but I enjoyed it. I I felt like I got an even deeper appreciation of the source material and then learned a lot about several different adaptations and media incarnations of Jane Eyre. In the planning stages of season one, which at that point in time wasn't season one, I did with my editor bat around the idea of what if this did continue and have other seasons. So it was always seated there if I decided to do it. I did in fact need a break after Jane Eyre because like I said, that was pretty labor intensive and and a lot of work went into that. And so I've come back and it's going to be a shorter season, but I had this idea and became fixated on this particular play, knowing two of the three adaptations already and having seen them before I went into this and interested in seeing that third and thought that it would be a fun idea to look at this, to continue potentially with the theme of feminism and also another niche work because Jane Eyre, you know, it's going to have certain fans, the women, many people may not have even heard of this play, probably have heard of the 1939 adaptation, maybe the Meg Ryan adaptation, probably not the one in the middle. 
And I mean, who am I but someone who likes to bring to others' attention things that you might not be aware of? So that's why I'm back because I had a lot of fun. I thought that this would be another fun adventure with season two. It's a shorter season, like I said, and I'm interested to dive into this work because I think it is pretty meaty as many plays are. Why this play, I really enjoy this play. It is fast. It is witty. It is jam-packed with all sorts of conversations that you can pull apart and you can either want to strangle some of the characters or laugh and cry along with them. I had known about the 1939 adaptation from my mother, I believe. I think we were talking at one point, and, and she had mentioned that she watched this. And then I think on a lark, I had either seen it come up maybe on Turner Classic Movies, or perhaps I had rented it and really enjoyed that adaptation. Star Started Cast, which of course I'll get into once that episode comes around, but I really liked it. And then last year when I went to New York City to see Six. I always like to go to the drama bookstore and usually pick up a play or two when I'm in there. And I had seen this, I I think quite accidentally and thought, oh, I think, you know, this is what that's based off of. And I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to buy this and read it. And so I immediately read it. And it is one of those plays that you don't realize how much is actually packed in to that script, to those two hours that you're sitting there. But it is very much like Gilmore Girls. I'm a big fan of Gilmore Girls. And and I know that those scripts were very thick, which you can get a sense of it just with how fast Lorelai and Rory are speaking. And so it's very similar in this way, just how how much dialogue is really crammed in this small amount of space. And you get a sense of that, too, with the 1939 film with how quick everything. It's just really moving. It's it's not a play that ever really lets up. So, again, I, I just think it is a really great and fun play. I think it is controversial. The, the main question that I'll be looking at probably throughout this whole series, but in particular this episode is, is it a feminist play or is it a misogynist play? So that's a question I'm going to keep circling back around to. So hold on to your hats with that. But yeah, the characters all have very distinct qualities to them. Some you're rooting for, some you hate, some you love to hate. Some get their comeuppance in the end. There's sort of mixed messaging. There's a question about friendship or is anyone really a friend? What is love? What is marriage in all this time? What's the role of women? So there are all these questions. And I think, of course, it hits me a bit stronger than it may another reader just because I am a woman. So the idea of your place in society as well as what does it say about you if you're married or not married, that sort of thing. So I think that this will be a fun ride for all I recommend reading the play but of course if not maybe you'll at least watch the films and and hopefully in this episode I'll give you a good enough idea of what the play is actually about if you've been with me with season one which was Jane Eyre remember I do a lot of research and so this one was harder to get mainly because it was harder to find news clippings from back then it was harder to find 
journals and articles about it, uh, academic articles. One article I was really trying to find, could not search for like an hour for this one particular journal, is not finding it. So I will cite when I'm when I'm reading from or pulling information from particular articles and journals. For the most part, I'm getting my information from Botanica, which uh, biography and synopsis I'm getting from there. I read a critical essay on love in the play by Liz Brent, and that's about marriage and its presentation and love in there. And then also Social Darwinism in the Powder Room, Claire Booth's The Women by Mary Maddock. So those are the three that I'm going to be looking at. And again, as I go through, I'll I'll try to cite as much as possible, especially if I'm pulling long quotes from them. So let's just talk about the author. This was somebody who I did not know about. And as I was starting to do some cursory research, was pleasantly surprised how steeped in politics this person is. So, you know, again, the question of feminist versus misogynist, you would think, well, she was a congresswoman. How could it possibly be misogynist? But we do, do we do know, especially nowadays, that that is not necessarily true, that a woman in power is necessarily supportive of others. But to think, you know, back when she was in politics at this point in time, in the, uh, the 30s, 40s, that, you know, things were a bit different back then. So anyways, so let's talk about Claire Booth Luce. Her biography is, I was happy to get this from Britannica because it was able to synthesize I think the main points about her but this woman led a life because there is a two-volume biography by Sylvia Jukes Morris on Claire Booth Luce so clearly it's it's pretty extensive and you and I could have done way more research but that is not in the scope of this podcast for sure so Claire Booth Luce, nay Anne Claire Booth, was born March 10th, 1903 in New York, New York, U.S., and died October 9th, 1987 in Washington, D.C. She's an American playwright, politician, and celebrity noted for her satiric sense of humor and for her role in American politics. Luce was born into poverty and an unstable home life. Her father, William Franklin Booth, left the family when she was eight years old. Through sacrifices by her mother, she was able to attend private schools in Garden City and Terrytown, New York. At age 20, she married George Brokaw, the wealthy son of a clothing manufacturer, and 23 years her senior. Oh, it's like Jane Earl all over again. Partly because of Brokaw's alcoholism, their marriage ended in divorce six years later, and she received a large settlement. The couple had one child. From 1930 to 1934, Luce was an editor at Vogue and Vanity Fair. In the latter, she published short sketches satirizing New York society, some of which were collected in stuffed shirts in 1931. In 1935, she met Harry R. Luce, the world-renowned publisher of Time and later Life magazine. They married one month after he divorced his wife of 12 years. Well, let's not insinuate anything about that, but that is kind of tricky timing there. After an earlier play failed, the marital melodrama Abide With Me in 1935, Luce wrote The Women in 1936, a satirical comedy that ran for 657 performances on Broadway, deploying a cast of no fewer than 40 actresses who discussed men in often scorching language. It became a Broadway at smash hit in 1936, and three years later, a successful Hollywood movie known for its exclusively female cast. Toward the end of her life, Luce claimed that for half a century, she had steadily received royalties from productions of the women all around the world. 
Later in the 30s, she wrote two more successful but less durable plays, also both made it to movies. Kiss the Boys Goodbye in 1938, a satire on American life, and Margin for Error in 1939. The latter work presented an all-out attack on the Nazis' racist philosophy. Its opening night in Princeton, New Jersey on October 14, 1939, was attended by Albert Einstein and Thomas Mann. Otto Preminger directed and starred in both the Broadway production and screen adaptation. From 1939 to 1940, Luce worked as a war correspondent for Life magazine and recounted her experiences in Europe in the spring of 1940. Luce was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives as a Republican from Connecticut, serving from 1943 to 1947, and became influential in Republican Party politics. After the death of her 19-year-old daughter in a car accident in 1944, she began conversations with the Reverend Fulton J. Sheen, which resulted in her conversion to Roman Catholicism in 1946. Luce served as ambassador to Italy from 1953 to 1956, was a public supporter of Barry Goldwater in the 1960s, and served on the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board under President Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, and Ronald Reagan in the 70s and 80s. In 1983, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She is remembered for her feisty demeanor and her acid wit, which she displayed in oft-quoted aphorisms such as, No good deed goes unpunished. So that is a little bit about the history of the playwright. I also want to give you the historical context of the play itself because none of these works exist in a vacuum and it's very much of its time and we're going to have to see also how the adaptations shift with the time period in which they are depicted. So first off, we have the Great Depression. Fall of 1929, United States economy, it's devastated by a collapse of the stock market. So it's now known, obviously, as the stock market crash of 1929. And these events plunged the United States and eventually many nations throughout the world into a devastating economic crisis that lasted until the beginning of World War II in 1939. This roughly 10-year period is known as the Great Depression. And as a result of the collapse of the economy during the Great Depression, many people People were out of work, lost their homes, and lived in abject poverty. Unemployment rates reached as high as 25 to 30 percent of the employable workforce. In the realm of international economy, the levels of world trade were reduced by more than half their previous volume. Political measures to address the problems of the Great Depression in the United States were dominated by the leadership of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who began his first term in 1933. Roosevelt initiated a wide variety of government programs in an effort to relieve the burden of poverty, raise the employment rate, and stimulate the economy. Roosevelt's domestic program for addressing the Great Depression is known as the Great Deal. The crucial first few months of Roosevelt's institution of the New Deal are known as the Hundred Days. So The Women was originally produced in 1936 during the heart of the Great Depression. And in this play, Luce emphasizes the stark differences between the experiences of wealthy, privileged women and those of poor, working women. Within the context of Great Depression-era America, Luce's critical perspective on the behavior of these society women is that much more pronounced. In her play, Luce Luce makes satiric references to the New Deal in a bit of clever dialogue when one of Mary's friends refers to her ex-husband's new wife as his quote-unquote New Deal. And within the play, and I'll talk about this later, there's this idea that men are portrayed as and traded as goods between the women. And there's a comparison between the number of men 
per woman, the ratio in Great Britain versus the men per ratio in the U.S. But what the difference is, is the percentage or the ratio of rich men to women. And thus we'll get some of this quote unquote catty behavior. But I, I will get back to that. We also need to consider the Reno divorce. So Act 2, Scene 2 of The Women takes place in the hotel room of a resort ranch in Reno, Nevada. In order to understand why Mary and her friends traveled to Reno, one must have some knowledge of the history of divorce laws and practices in the United States. During the period in which The Women takes place, divorces were much more difficult to obtain than they were in the, well now, as well as the early 2000s, which is when we have our third and final adaptation. Divorce was also considered to be scandalous and embarrassing for both parties, but especially for divorced women. Furthermore, divorce laws varied from state to state, making them easier to obtain in some states than in others. Because Nevada had relatively liberal divorce laws, as well as very short-term requirements for state citizenship, only six weeks at the time, many wealthy society women during the 1930s went to Reno in order to get divorced. Because these women needed to stay in the state for a period of weeks in order to obtain state citizenship, an industry of resort ranches developed to accommodate them. For this reason, Mary and many of her New York Society friends, which we'll see, like many high society women during that period, find themselves together in Reno while waiting for their divorces to go through. Okay, so those are the two big setting pieces that we'll we'll need to be aware of. Okay, so let's talk about the productions, and in particular that first one. So there have been three New York City productions. The first, and the original of course, uh, ran from December 26, 1936 through July 9, 1938 in the Ethel Barrymore Theater. The first revival ran from April 25th, 1973 to June 17th, 1973 in the 46th Street Theater, and then the second revival ran from november 8th 2001 to january 13th 2002 in the american airlines theater now let's look at that original production 657 performances as i said the ethel barrymore theater is owned and operated by the schubert organization it was produced by Max Gordon, written by Claire Booth, as we know, staged by Robert B. Sinclair, scenic designed by Joe Mielziner, costume supervised by John Hambleton, general manager Ben A. Boyer, company manager Albert A. Cohen, stage manager Carl Nielsen, assistant stage manager Bernard Hart and Barbara Adams, and press representative Nat Dorfman. The opening night cast is as follows. Charita Bauer, looks like we're going in alphabetical order. Charita Bauer played Little Mary, Eloise Bennett, Yuffie, Eileen Burns, Miss Fordyce, Jesse Boosley, Mrs. Moorhead, Mary Cecil, Maggie, Ilka Chase as Sylvia, a.k.a. Mrs. Howard Fowler, Virgilia Chu as Miss Watts, Audrey Christie as Miriam Ahrens, Beatrice Cole as second model, Doris Day as first saleswoman. <laughs> Okay. Margaret Douglas as Countess DeLage, Lucille Fenton as head saleswoman and a nurse, Arlene Francis as Princess Tamara and Helene, Margolo Gilmore as Mary, aka Mrs. Stephen Haynes, Ruth Hammond as Olga, Joy Hathaway as a fitter, and Hunter as exercise instructress, Ethel Jackson as Mrs. Wagstaff, Betty Lawford as Crystal Allen, Marjorie Maine as Lucy, Adrian Martin as Peggy, aka Mrs. John Day, Jane Moore as second hairdresser, Mary Murray as Miss Trimmerback, Lillian Norton as cigarette girl, 
Phyllis Pova as Edith, a.k.a. Mrs. Phelps Potter, Jean Rodney as second saleswoman, Jane Seymour as Nancy Blake, Mary Stewart as first hairdresser, Anne Tiemann as Jane, Martina Thomas as third saleswoman, Beryl Wallace as first model, Anne Watson as pedicurist, and Marjorie Wood as Sadie. And it is noted in the actual play that while up to 40 roles could be offered, obviously, there could also be doubling. It is unlikely that the main cast of women, aka like the people in Mary's circle, would probably be doubled, even though like Peggy, for instance, isn't on stage very often so she could probably double as somebody else but a lot of like the, the side characters could definitely those actresses could pull off two to three different roles because there's a lot going on in some of the scenes so now I'm going to get into the plot synopsis of this play and this is from encyclopedia.com. So act one, scene one. The women opens with Mary Haynes' circle of high society friends playing bridge at her Park Avenue apartment in New York City. When Mary walks out of the room, Sylvia relates that she has learned from a manicurist named Olga that Mary's husband, Stephen, is carrying on an extramarital affair. When Mary returns, Sylvia encourages her to make an appointment for a manicure from Olga. With friends like these, am I right? Act 1, Scene 2. A few days later, Mary goes to Michael's beauty salon to get a manicure from Olga. Olga, who does not know that Mary is the wife of Stephen Haynes, relates the gossip that he is having an affair with Crystal Allen. Mary informs Olga that she is Mrs. Stephen Haynes and gets up to leave, asking Olga not to continue gossiping about this matter. I'm sure she'll listen. Act 1, Scene 3. An hour later in Mary's bedroom, Mrs. Moorhead, Mary's mother, arrives and Mary tells her about Stephen having an affair. Mrs. Moorhead advises Mary to do and say nothing about it. She says that all married men, including Mary's father, have such affairs and that it is in the wife's best interest to pretend not to notice. Mrs. Moorhead persuades Mary to go on vacation with her to Bermuda in order to get away and let the affair blow over. Just then, Stephen calls to say he will be working late again and will not be home in time for dinner. Act 1, Scene 4. After a two-month vacation in Bermuda with her mother, Mary returns to New York. At a women's clothing store on Fifth Avenue, she finds herself trying on clothes in a fitting room right next to one in which Crystal Allen is trying on clothes. Encouraged by Sylvia, Mary enters Crystal's dressing room and confronts her about Stephen. Crystal appears unthreatened by Mary and tells her that Stephen plans on marrying her. Feeling humiliated by Crystal, Mary walks out. Act 1, Scene 5. Two weeks later, at Elizabeth Arden's beauty salon, Mary's friend Edith confides to her friends Sylvia and Peggy that she unthinkingly told a well-known gossip colonist about Stephen's affair with Crystal and about Mary's confrontation with Crystal at the clothing store. Act 1, Scene 6. A few days later, Mary's maid and her cook discuss the fact that Stephen's affair with Crystal was published in a gossip column of a tabloid newspaper and that Mary and Stephen are in the midst of a quarrel over the affair. Stephen claims to have ended the affair, but Mary still will not forgive him for it, and she asks for a divorce. Act 1, Scene 7. A month later, Mary is preparing to travel to Reno, Nevada, where she can obtain a divorce from Stephen. Mrs. Moorhead, Mary's mother, tries to persuade her to take Stephen back, but she refuses. Mary explains to her daughter, Little Mary, that she and Stephen are going to get divorced. Act 2, Scene 1. A month later, Mary's friend Peggy visits her friend Edith, who is in the hospital with a newborn baby. Peggy says that both she and Sylvia will be going to Reno to obtain divorces. Sylvia knows that her husband wants to marry another woman, but she does not know who the woman is. 
Act 2, Scene 2. A few weeks later, Mary and several of her friends discuss their divorces while staying at a resort in Reno. The Countess de Lage, one of Mary's friends, announces that she is considering marrying Buck Winston, a young cowboy. After Sylvia learns that her husband is divorcing her in order to marry Miriam, she and Miriam get into a hair-pulling fight, which Mary tries to break up. Stephen calls for Mary and informs her that he and Crystal have gotten married. Act 2, Scene 3. Two years later, Crystal is taking a long bubble bath in the New York apartment where she lives with Stephen. While bathing, she talks on the phone to Buck Winston, with whom she is having an affair. Buck is now married to the Countess DeLage, who has helped him to succeed as a movie star. Mary's daughter, Little Mary, enters and overhears Crystal's conversation with Buck, although she is not sure what it means. While Crystal is still in the bathtub, Sylvia comes to visit her in her bathroom. Sylvia sees the key to the Gothic apartments, which is known as a location for conducting extramarital affairs. Act 2, Scene 4. That night, Mary has a dinner party, quote, a memorial reunion for old Renoites, end quote, with her friends and their various new husbands to celebrate the two-year anniversary of her divorce from Stephen. The Countess mentions that she suspects Buck Winston is cheating on her. Mary's friends invite her to join them at a late-night party on the casino roof, but she declines. After the guests leave, Little Mary inadvertently provides Mary with the information that Crystal's having an affair with Buck Winston. Mary immediately dresses to go to the party at the casino roof where she knows that Crystal, Buck, and Stephen are in attendance. Act 2, Scene 5. Late that night in the ladies' room of the casino roof, Mary and her friend Miriam discuss how to go about revealing Crystal's affair with Buck Winston so that Stephen will find out about it and decide to divorce Crystal. When Crystal enters the ladies' room, Mary and her friends trick her into admitting to the affair. The Countess finds out it's Crystal who is, quote, the other woman. Mary goes off to tell Stephen about Crystal's affair, confident that she will win him back for herself. So because the plot synopsis is rather straightforward and to the point you don't get a good sense of who these particular characters are so i thought i'd talk a little bit about them and also through that give you an idea of their thoughts on love and marriage and this is where i'll be taking from liz brent a bit so first off we have mary haynes She's our central protagonist of the women. She's been married for 12 years. She has a son and a daughter, though we only really see her relationship with little Mary, her daughter. Now, her attitude of love shifts from the beginning to the end of the play. In the beginning, her attitudes about love are traditional and idealistic. Uh, she believes her husband, Stephen, married her because he loves her and that he will always love her. She also believes that love between a man and a woman or husband and wife is a central element of marriage and that without that, it's really not worth maintaining. At the end of the play, Mary comes to the conclusion that marriage is a matter of compromise, that love between husband and wife is not the most important factor in maintaining a marriage. We then have Sylvia Fowler, who certainly provides the most conflict in the play. <laughs> and she's a quote-unquote friend, which I will talk about female friendship as presented in this particular play. So she is married to Howard. She's 34, and she is one of the married women in Mary's social circle, though she is having an affair, and then her husband has an affair, but she's upset that he's going to be divorcing her. I wonder who that other woman is so her attitudes about love and marriage are more cynical they're less idealistic than those expressed by mary she sees it as a social and financial arrangement uh, to which idealistic notions of love really do not apply 
love is not the object of marriage for Sylvia. We then have Crystal Allen, and she is a young shop girl who is having an affair with Stephen Haynes, the husband of Mary Haynes, then of course becomes the second Mrs. Haynes, which there's a hilarious scene at the end of Mrs. Haynes, Mrs. Haynes, meet Mrs. Yeah, I'll get to that as well. She's described by one character as a, quote, terrible man trap. And with Crystal, Luce, the, the playwright, is portraying a working class woman who's able to improve her socioeconomic status through being the mistress and then the wife of a wealthy man because economics and, well, SES really is going to be a theme that we will talk about. For her also, love is more in the physical sense. She indicates during that altercation with Mrs. Haynes in the Fifth Avenue shop that she and Stephen have been engaged in a sexual relationship for the past six months. And even though Stephen has been loving her in the physical sense, Mary is still the one who gets to enjoy all the social and economic privileges of marriage. And she even says, quote, you've got everything that matters, the name, the position, and the money. So she recognizes the importance of marriage for financial security, similar to Sylvia, and she's overly motivated to prevent Stephen from finding out about her affair with Buck at the end of the play because now that she's married to Stephen, she'll lose that financial security. We also have Nancy Blake. She's 35. She's the only woman in Mary's social circle who has never been married. She's financially independent. She supports herself as a novelist, although her novels are not particularly popular. And we'll talk about some of this financially independent or being independent and and the pros and cons of that within this play. Because she's never been married and she's not really looking for a husband, she is above all the infighting that takes place between the other women over competition for husbands. And she's able to make fun of them a great deal. She's also one who I think speaks lots of truth to Mary Haynes. At one point when Mary realizes that Stephen probably married her when she was younger because of how beautiful she was and that now that she's older perhaps there's been a loss of physical attraction and and that's why he doesn't love her as much. Nancy responds with a quote from Shakespeare, quote, love is not love which alters when it alteration finds. So if he if that is how he lost love for her and that her appearance has changed, then he never loved her in the first place. So she really expresses the idea that true love is an ideal that goes deeper and endures longer than mere physical attraction. So again, more idealistic, I would say, than some of these other characters. Edith Potter is the right-hand woman of Sylvia. She usually agrees with her, goes along with her. She is married to Phelps. Uh, a member of Mary's social circle. She she seems to be perpetually pregnant. Uh, she's pregnant at the beginning. She's pregnant at the end. At one point, there's a comment of like, are you guys Catholic or something? I, I think that's what the comment was. So yeah, she's she's constantly pregnant. With this character, Luce presents a very harsh, unromanticized view of the role of women as child bearers and child rearers, which, of course, is something that we'll talk about, about what is the purpose of being a woman, being a woman in marriage, that sort of thing. So here we have a representative of that potential idea. Peggy aka Mrs. John Day. She's 25. She's the youngest member of Mary's social circle. She's probably the, I would say, the most innocent. She's more sympathetic than most of Mary's friends. They 
The other women have a callous attitude toward each other's marital troubles, but Peggy is genuinely sympathetic regarding the crises of her friend's marriage. Peggy is similar to Mary in having an idealistic and traditional attitude towards love and marriage. And of course, uh, that circle makes fun of her for some of that. We'll also see she has some financial struggles and, and the idea of being independent or keeping some independence from your husband uh, will cause her some issues. So that is a theme that will be brought up as well. The Countess de Lage is a wealthy middle-aged woman. She's a member of Mary's social circle halfway and then towards the end. And she is someone who has been married multiple times. She's cheerful and optimistic about prospects for love and love is the reason for marriage miriam aarons a 28 year old stage actress who stars in musical comedies from reno onward is a part of mary's social circle and she is the one with whom sylvia's husband is having an affair and i want to talk about miriam in comparison to mary a little bit later and their ideas of love and marriage because they are very much foils of one another and then sort of become one. We have Mrs. Moorhead, who is Mary's mother, and she's described as a bourgeois aristocrat of 55. And she presents Mary with brutal facts about marriage, informing her that all men cheat on their wives, even Mary's father. She certainly has traditional ideas about marriage and divorce that, that is relevant today, that raising children and maintaining a household is the point of marriage, that people shouldn't get divorced because parents should stay together for the sake of the children, even though Mary says that there's no point in raising children in a house without love. Little Mary is the daughter of Mary and Stephen. She is intelligent and sharp-witted. She's insightful about the ways in which women's lives are limited by the constraints of social convention, which I will talk about a bit more. But she knows that love can kind of get in the way and women begin to act strangely when love is involved and they sort of lose their independence. For her, marriage is, yeah, a lack of ambition. Her mother says, oh, well, you know, that's fulfilled by having children. Little Mary doesn't really buy into that very much. Olga is the manicurist and the agent of gossip on Stephen Haynes' affair. So there's not much more to get into that except potentially just the idea of working class versus these high society women, which I will again get to. And then I think my last character that I'll talk about is just Lucy, uh, who's a caretaker at the resort ranch in Reno where Mary and her friends stay while awaiting their divorce. So Lucy is providing a working class woman's perspective on marriage and divorce and explaining to these wealthy society women that economic factors make it more difficult for poor women to get divorced. And she's in what seems to be an abusive relationship. And so you see this contrast between Lucy sticking it out and these other women who are able to fly over, stay someplace for six weeks, get their citizenship, and then divorce. So class differences pop up here. And we have to keep that in mind when we're looking at this play and then all these adaptations that even if you may see yourself in some of these characters, they're also like beyond many average people. So, but it is a satire. So we're, we're sort of poking fun at the wealthy class, but also looking at them in a human way because they are women as well. So some themes that are popping up in 
this work. We have the idea of the modern woman. So Mary is going from being an idealistic woman, she's maintaining some traditional beliefs about marriage, to being a more modern woman with a realistic perspective on the harsh realities of marriage. Luce actually makes reference to modern woman in The Women to emphasize the differences between traditional, idealistic views that Mary may hold at the beginning of the play and then a more modern and cynical understanding of marriage as a game of power, money, and competition. At the end, Mary even sums up what she has learned with the statement, quote, modern life is complicated. As I said before, at the beginning, Mary's idealistic about her marriage. She believes her husband would never be unfaithful to her because he loves her and is happily married. But then as we progress through the play, she's becoming disillusioned with marriage. She's now learning to accept the fact that only by facing harsh realities of the institution of marriage can she effectively fight to regain her husband. And then at the very end of the play, she now knows and is able to function successfully in a ruthless modern world where women must engage in fierce competition with each other for men. Another theme, of course, is marriage and divorce. I mean, what does love and marriage mean for the different characters? I've sort of talked about that. It's This play is centrally focused on issues of marriage and divorce as they affect the lives of women in general. Luce is portraying marriage as a social institution defined by power, status, and money rather than being based on mutual love and fidelity between husband and wife. Yes, there are some of these characters that do love and feel like love is at the base of it, but their partner may not add that same thing or money gets in the way as we see with Peggy and John. Money is an incentive. Money is security. So money is very much at the heart of marriage here. The marriages that are portrayed in this play are characterized by chronic infidelity. Luce is portraying a social world in which all husbands cheat on their wives. Many wives cheat on their husbands. So quid pro quo, I guess we should be happy that, you know, there's, there's equality on both sides there. When Mary confides in her mother that she's discovered Stephen's infidelity, her mother responds that all men cheat, right? And the best way for a woman to deal with it is just ignore it. But because she's idealistic about marriage, she feels she has no choice but to divorce Stephen because of his infidelity and her pride, which we'll also get to. Most of the marriages in the women eventually result in divorce. Mrs. Moorhead laments that modern laws have made divorce easier to obtain and have thus destabilized the institution of marriage. Female friendship. Yeah, this is certainly something that... I have a question about. So in this play, Luce portrays female friendships as a set of interactions poisoned by malicious gossip, competition over men, backstabbing, and ruthless self-interest. She paints an extremely negative picture of women's friendships as characterized by cattiness. Most of Mary's quote-unquote friends do more damage than good in her life. It's a friend who encourages her to make an appointment with the manicurist who gossips about Stephen's affairs. A friend who encourages her to confront Crystal in the clothing store. It's a friend who carelessly tells a gossip columnist all about Mary's marital problems. Whoa. So at the beginning of the play, Mary, just like her idealism about marriage, is idealistic about her friendship. She sees everyone in the most positive light she can. But by the end, Mary has learned not to trust her female friends. And in the closing lines of the play, Sylvia says to Mary, what a dirty female trick you played. But Mary has learned to utilize ruthless methods in order to fight other women and secure her own self-interest. 
Now, one question I have is who is actually friends with whom, right? I feel like Peggy is the most innocent of this crew. She wants to do no harm. She even wants to help, but she's sometimes prevented by Edith and Sylvia, especially in that exercise scene. So I would say that definitely Peggy is a friend of Mary because she does. she is sympathetic and wants to help. At one point in Act 2, Scene 2... Mary, when Peggy, Peggy's about to get a divorce and then her husband calls and wants her to come back, especially while Peggy is now pregnant. And Mary says, when you get back, don't see too much of your girlfriends for a while. And Peggy says, oh, I won't marry. It's all their fault we're here. So even she has a realization on who these friends are that just if you're in this social circle, doesn't actually mean that you have each other's backs. Even Sylvia, that I would find perhaps the worst, she ends up going to a psychoanalyst and, and says that Mary, as well as some of these other women, probably Miriam as well, has destroyed all her faith in friendship, which is really ironic because Sylvia is the one who does the most damage. Miriam is definitely someone to have on your side. When Mary declines initially to not go to that party, Miriam says, well, I'm going. Wish you could see the cooing fest Howard and I put on for Sylvia. Shall I spit in Crystal's eye for you? Mary shakes her head as the stage direction. You're passing up a swell chance, sister. Where I spit, no grass grows ever. So Miriam's, yeah, definitely someone I would have on my side. I may not agree with all of her choices, in particular being the other woman for a marriage, but she is, she's supportive of the countess during her revelation that buck is having an affair she's supportive of mary she is i think an actual true friend to mary like peggy is at one point i think a good question is asked by the mother uh mrs moorhead right after that section and and she says those dreadful women make me nervous why mrs haynes tolerates them even once a year is beyond me and mary ends up saying an object lesson which is very interesting you know why does mary tolerate them i think it's a reminder right of and it's also i think keep your enemies closer right some of these people now peggy and the countess are really the three people that she surrounds herself with after those two years post-divorce and so those are actually friends but object lesson as in look at what had happened to them look at where they've come from look at what they've survived look at where they are now so she can also I think judge from their situations where she is and maybe what she should and should not do and also yeah if she does keep in contact with because I, I feel like she doesn't very much with Sylvia and Edith that's certainly a keep your enemies closer because you want to know what is going on but I think it's dangerous to have Sylvia close in your party so to answer the question of who is actually friends definitely yeah Peggy and Miriam I think are good friends to Mary I think Miriam might be the closest one to Mary which I'm about to get into uh, sort of the the dual identity of of Mary and Miriam and then the countess is there though at the end there there seems to be a bit of a break she kind of cuts them off at the very end so they lose that friendship but I am glad that she cuts Sylvia off and and sort of gives her what for at the end of the play oh and I should say that in regards to female friendship, there is a lot of catty behavior. This is some imagery that we see. Luce often describes her characters in terms of animal imagery. It's certainly one of the central themes of the play. 
yes, the predominant animal is, in fact, cats. Cattiness is associated with competitive, malicious, and vicious behavior in women's interactions with another. You know, there's a tussle between Sylvia Miriam and Reno, and that's regarded as a cat fight. The cattiness of these characters is compared more to the behavior of a wild cat, such as a lion, tiger, or leopard, than a house cat because of the fierceness with which the women actually compete with each other. You've got that jungle red fingernail polish that Sylvia had and tells Mary to get. And when Crystal tells Mary at the end of the play, you're just a cat like all the rest of us, Mary triumphantly replies that she has had two years to sharpen her claws, which are painted jungle red at this point. So that's, you know, that statement is the culmination of the wildcat imagery that is recurring in the play. And earlier on, Nancy had referred to Jungle Red nail polish as just the thing for clawing your friends apart. So Luce's message, obviously, in, in, is that the realm of competition between women to claim husbands operates according to the laws of the jungle, and only the fiercest, most vicious, ruthless fighters win out in the end. So this idea of, you know, the strongest will survive. If all this cattiness exists within the circle are there any friends whatsoever? But at the very end, there is a community of women that stick together and it is more positive. The two people that are really heading up this community, and I would say primarily it's Mary, but Mary and Miriam are these two women that sort of bring other people together. And they're two sides of the same coin, if you think about it. And so this is coming from Mary Maddox paper. And I saw a lot of sort of Bertha versus Jane as well, where you have these these two visions of one woman almost. Booth cleverly pairs Mary with her friend Miriam. Miriam and Mary's different approaches to life make them seem a paradigm of the split woman and patriarchy that appears in American women's drama for the first time in this century in Alice Gerstenberg's Overtones in 1915. In Gerstenberg's play, each woman houses within herself two opposing personalities. In Booth's play, the two different personalities split so completely that they form two separate characters with individual opposing identities. Miriam and Mary are opposites in several ways. They come from different classes and so have had life experiences that are very different. Mary's privileged upbringing insulated her from most of life's problems. She believes she can lead a storybook existence as long as she plays by the rules. What she does not count on is the incursion into her world of disruptive women from the lower classes who play by completely different rules and play to win. Although Mary is Booth's central character, Miriam is the play's raisonneur and Mary's guide. She is qualified for this role because she also lost the man she loved by holding onto old-fashioned notions of female purity and passivity. During the course of the play, Mary comes closer to Miriam's view of life, healing the breach between the two halves of what should be one woman and giving them the same happy fate in marriage. As Mary changes, she becomes a role model and teacher, advising her friends who are caught in unsatisfactory marital situations similar to hers. Her advice reflects her own changes under the tutelage of Miriam. Implied in the play, then, is the possibility of change through women supporting and teaching one another. The installation of a feeling of a community in some of the women in Booth's play is largely the responsibility of Mary and Miriam. By giving out advice and later by actively involving themselves in their friends' romantic lives, Mary and Miriam gradually turn their friends away from mutually destructive behavior and toward female community and alliance. And this is true of 
Mary, Miriam, the Countess, temporarily, I guess, and then Peggy. And I think Edith and Sylvia just never make it into that community just because of the nature of who they are. I think Edith could, but I, I don't know that Sylvia ever will. Another theme, of course, we have is gossip, which if you're a fan of the Aeneid like I am, you know that gossip can destroy many things. And that is true, I guess, outside of epic poetry as well. Luce presents the world of society women in her play as one in which gossip is rampant, ruthless, and potentially devastating. The friendships between women, the various settings in which women gather together without men around, these are all characterized by gossip. Mary's friends gossip about her and each other whenever they get the chance, and even Mary's servants gossip about her marital problems. Mary first learns of Stephen's infidelity from a gossipy manicurist, as you know. she Her position is worsened when a friend of her, quote-unquote friend, gossip to another woman about the affair and that turns out to be a professional gossip columnist mary is someone who refrains from gossiping about others preferring to mind her own business and really stay above the fray but by the end of the play she has learned to use any means necessary and every means available to her in order to get Stephen back and this includes the spreading of malicious gossip about another woman and unfortunately i think that comes at the sacrifice of the countess so there is uh, a bit of a step backwards for mary in that scene another theme beauty standards beauty standards and again, I'll look at this paper, Social Darwinism in the Powder Room. The women in this play spend most of their time on activities devoted to making them attractive to men. Much of the play is set in beauty salons, women's clothing stores, anywhere where women are shown putting themselves through a wide variety of uncomfortable, painful, or unpleasant processes in order to improve their looks. A hairdresser at Michael's Beauty Salon reminds her client who is undergoing a painful hair treatment, quote, we must suffer to be beautiful. The character's focus on trying to look good is portrayed as motivated by a desire to either attract men as potential husbands or to keep their husbands interested in them. These women are fearing the aging process. They feel like they have to compete with younger women for their husbands' attention. Mary, like I said before, believes that her husband's attracted to her because he loves her, and then she realizes that, well, she's grown older and he may no longer be physically attracted to her. So Luce is conveying a harsh picture of the status of women in marriage as one that is inherently insecure. As wives age, their husbands inevitably seek the attentions of younger, more attractive women. So these extensive efforts made by the aging wives to be beautiful are shown to be futile because their husbands will eventually lose interest in them and engage in extramarital affairs. Beauty, this comes from the paper, beauty is a remarkable asset and its value can easily decrease. Contrary to endorsing such behavior, Booth brings out the agony of the rituals of public execution, as the first hairdresser describes it, that women go through to make themselves desirable. The body that was an asset when she was young has now become a liability. This is really in terms of Mary. The battle of women to keep their looks is one which they will eventually all lose. To postpone that event as long as possible becomes a primary goal. The final theme I will talk about is women and socioeconomic class. So Luce focuses on the different conditions of women's lives based on their SES. 
The high society women, such as Mary and her friends, they're married to wealthy men, they enjoy social status, the economic privilege that wealth comes with, and these women seem to have no idea of the suffering and economic hardship that is experienced by much of the population. And again, we're in the Great Depression. The working class women and the women lead harder lives than the high society women. Oost portrays working women such as a nurse, a secretary, and a maid who complain about the hard work, poverty, and difficult conditions of their lives. While Edith is in the hospital having just delivered a baby, she complains of the difficulty of giving birth. Now, disgusted with Edith's lack of awareness of how privileged she is to be lying in a comfortable bed having given birth in a hospital, the nurse angrily blurts out, quote, women like you don't know what a terrible time is. Try burying a baby in scrubbing floors. Try having one in a cold, filthy kitchen without ether, without a change of linen, without decent food, without a scent to bring it up, end quote. The difficulties single working women must face as they struggle for financial security are elaborated upon by Stephen's secretary, who relates, quote, I'm sick and tired of cooking my own breakfast, sloshing through the rain at 8 a.m., working like a dog. For what? Independence? A lot of independence you have on women's wages. I chuck it like that for a decent or an indecent home, end quote. So Luce is really emphasizing the economic factors women must consider in deciding whether to marry or divorce, regardless of whether the marriage is a happy one. From that paper again, like their rich husbands, the women are products of a capitalist mentality. Whereas their husbands deal in Wall Street securities, the women trade in the economic security of their marriages. This portrayal of men as mere utilities of economic provision is a reversal of the usual patriarchal notion, one common to restoration comedies, of women as property. The women, not having social power, gain control of powerful men who in turn become goods to be awarded to the most aggressive bidder. Men, then, the women shows, are accorded the special treatment given to a valuable and desirable object. I mentioned this scene before, but just talking about uh, Mary's maid, Jane, notices that Miss Fordyce, the governess, treats Mary's son, Stevie, preferentially and attributes her behavior to the necessity of nurturing a commodity in short supply. Now, Miss Fordyce herself remarks, quote, in England, Mrs. Haynes, our girls are not so wretchedly spoiled. After all, this is a man's world. Mary observes that although Miss Fordyce really prefers Mary, she insists we all make a little god of Stevie. Jane aptly blames this attitude on the relative scarcity of males in post-World War I England, exclaiming, quote, competition is something fierce. Now, at the time Booth wrote the women, there was no shortage of men in the United States, but during the Depression years, there was a shortage of rich men. And to emphasize the fact that men hardly exist apart from their money, Booth uses the brilliant device of keeping the men who are at the center of the play's action offstage. Speaking more on independence, we know that society forces women into compromising positions and because of their unsatisfactory place, working women must work harder than the financially supported members of their sex to obtain what they want. So this is very much the cost of independence. Even Nancy, who is the independent member of their societal community which I forgot she should be a part of the community I just sometimes forget about her she at one point says practically no one ever misses a clever woman and remember that little Mary she doesn't want to be a little girl I hate girls they're so silly and they tattle tattle which is interesting that she recognizes the gossip early on what fun is there to be a lady what can a lady do 
Mary tries to assure her daughter and say, these days, darling, ladies do all the things men do. They fly airplanes across the ocean. They go into politics and business. But little Mary says, you don't, mother. Even when the ladies do things, they stop it when they get the lovey doveys. And later on, Jane reinforces this because Mary observes she doesn't want to be a woman, Jane. And Jane replies, who does? Little Mary is an interesting character because even as young as she is, she has a good idea that she's living in a man's world. She has a good idea of what it means to be a girl and that tattling e- equals gossip, as I said. The the fact that being a girl brings with it trouble and that trouble is re- usually related to sex and, and she points out her hips and her breasts. And this is something that is reiterated later on by the model in the store during scene number four. So very much almost crystal's idea of love and that is very physical in nature little mary realizes like that's that is leaning that way that men are looking at you that way and this also i think cements the idea that beauty is at the center of these marriages and when beauty is going away then that love and security is also going away so i if i just move on to the literary style i've already spoken about The settings, of course, it's set both in New York City and Reno, Nevada, in these locations that are frequented primarily by women. And then in New York, we have the beauty salon, the dressing room of a women's clothing store. We have Mary's bedroom and Crystal's bathroom. And a number of these scenes are also set in the Park Avenue apartments of wealthy society women and their families. And so Luce is emphasizing using these settings, the luxury and comfort enjoyed by these married women who have servants to wait on them hand and foot. And all of these settings also characterize the fact that most of the central characters in the women do not have to work. And so they have a lot of free time to spend shopping, getting manicures, and playing bridge, as well as, let's not forget, gossip. This is a social satire, so let us not forget that it is a comedy of manners. It ridicules the foibles of upper-class society, particularly in the realm of male-female relationships. Luce has said that the women she portrayed in this play represented the type of women she met in high society whom she despised. Many of the characters in the play have exaggerated traits of selfishness, shallowness, and self-centeredness that make them objects of ridicule in the eyes of the audience. And Luce's stinging comedic dialogue further captures the atmosphere of competition and selfishness among the central female characters. Of the genre, from Maddox's paper again, the major problems audiences have had with Booth's play, which I will talk about some of this criticism, its immorality and cynicism are inherent in the play genre. As Kenneth Moore observes, the comedy of manners is one branch of English comedy that is almost exclusively concerned with sexual relations in and out of marriage. So we have some popular culture references in this play as well so throughout the women various characters make references to public figures who were well known during the 1930s but who may be unfamiliar to readers in the 2000s in order to appreciate some of Luce's humorous dialogue and to make sense of what the characters are saying it's helpful to have some idea of who these figures from popular culture were so there were a number of references to popular Hollywood movie personalities of the era we hear of or read of Mae West and Joan Crawford, as well as the romantic lead actor Clark Gable and the comic actor Harpo Marx. Other Hollywood personalities mentioned in this play include well-known movie studio moguls such as Daryl F. Zanuck, co-founder of the 20th Century Fox, and Louis B. Mayer, vice president of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios. 
The mention of a Mrs. Astor by one character resonates with the themes of gossip and divorce in the women. Mary Astor was a popular movie star of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. There are several scandalous aspects of Astor's personal life, all of which became a subject of widespread gossip in the popular press. She had three divorces, severe alcoholism, and attempted suicide being among the topics seized upon by gossip columnists. The biggest scandal of Astor's life hit the presses in 1936, which of course is the same year in which The Women was first produced, when in the process of Astor's second divorce, her personal diary was publicly presented in court, revealing clandestine affairs with many Hollywood personalities, and this revelation became the subject matter of widespread gossip and intrigue. If we were to ask how does the time period in which this play is written compare with today and whether we can relate at all to the situations going on in particular being a woman in this time period in the 30s u.s is in the midst of the great depression worst economic crisis in the history of the nation unemployment all-time high so today the economy fluctuates greatly there are many regulations that work to ensure that an economic collapse such as that which caused the great depression does not repeat itself. Unemployment rates also fluctuate, uh, but they have not reached the devastating levels of the Great Depression era. In the 1930s, divorce laws, again, as I said before, vary widely from state to state. They result in the development of Reno, Nevada as a locus where people from all over the country come to obtain divorces. Today, divorce laws still vary from state to state. There's an overall liberalization of divorce laws, which makes it easier for couples to obtain divorces within their home states. It's a bit easier. In the 30s, women's opportunities for earning an independent living through professional endeavors are limited by a male-dominated work world. Because of limited job opportunities, most women are dependent on their husbands for economic support. And if they stray from that, like poor Peggy, that brings the men down. Uh, I will talk about kind of the psyche of men as well later on. And then today, women's professional opportunities are greatly increased. It's not perfect. We're getting better. Women are allowed to pursue any profession a man can with reasonable hope for success. Reasonable. Many women earn enough to enjoy complete economic independence. And we're getting a bit better about equal pay and things like that. So it is, it's different. The 30s, from the 30s to today, there's obviously a stark contrast. But I think that there are still things that resonate, uh, in particular friendships, female friendships and gossip. And I will ask some other questions uh, when I get back. I am going to take a break. I think I've talked a lot. I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to talk about critiques at the time and some other questions that I have in really talking more about that. Is this a feminist or a misogynist play? So I will see you soon. Adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. walking across and, and you know what? Men too. Well, uh, uh, Stella. Men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa, they're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas? As much as I enjoy um, 
indulging your insanity. Uh, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh yes, Required Reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, Required Reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. Okay, welcome back. So yeah, I do want to talk about some of these critical reviews. So first, I want to thank Professor Carolyn Coca for sending me some archived news clippings from New York Times because I always hit a paywall. And these are all from the premiere of the play. So first, New York Times, published December 8th, 1936. Premiere of the Women, new comedy by Claire Booth, is given in Philadelphia. So Philadelphia, December 7th. The new three-act comedy, The Women, by Claire Booth, was presented by Max Gordon in its first performance here tonight at the Forest Theater. An all-feminine cast of 38 talked intimately of things women talk about in the sitting rooms, at the hairdressers, in the boudoir, the pantry, the exercise salon, and in Reno. The plot centers about Mrs. Stephen Haynes, who, thanks to observations privately conveyed to her by hairdressers, attendants, and dressmakers, learns that her husband is interested in a blonde. Margot Gilmore has the leading part, and others in the cast are Jesse Boosley, Betty Lawford, the child actress Charita Bauer, and Ilka Chase. Then published December 26, 1936, News of the Stage, The Women Start Knitting Tonight at the Ethel Barrymore, the openings of next week. This evening, they are bringing the women to the Ethel Barrymore Theater, an all-feminine play telling the assorted antics of a group of Manhattan ladies of various ages and states of mind and being. Thirty-eight of them there will be, and some of the names are Margalo Gilmore, Ilka Chase, Betty Lawford, Jesse Boosley, Phyllis Pova, Margaret Douglas, Jane Seymour, Audrey Christie, and Beryl Wallace. Claire Booth wrote the original script, and during the play's practice weeks, George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart added to it some ideas of their own. Interesting. Robert V. Sinclair directed, and Joe Mulziner designed the settings. The curtain is advertised to rise at 8.30, and the cost of the opening night tickets is $4.40 and down. Good heavens. I mean... You don't pay less than $100 now. And then the final one, published December 28th, 1936. The Women, a play in three acts, which is very interesting because my script only had two. Staged by Robert B. Sinclair, settings by Joe Mielziner, and produced by Max Gordon at the Ethel Barrymore. It gives our list of cast. And here we go. 
Not the ladies, but the women are the brew and Claire Booth's kettle of venom, which the actors set to bubbling at the Ethel Barrymore Theater on Saturday evening. With a good deal of feline wit and without benefit of either a single or a wedded male actor, she has told the divorce story of the smart women of New York against a cyclorama of bridge clubs, permanent wave chambers of horror, fitting rooms, maternity wards, nightclub powder rooms, and one elegant bathroom where a blonde trollop languishes handsomely in suds and talks with her lover over a gilded telephone handset max gordon has produced it with lustrous scenery by joe Miltziner and brilliant costuming supervised by john hamilton and the acting especially margot lo gilmore's is altogether first rate Oh, tis a wicked, censorious world, as Mrs. Fidget says in Weicherly's companion piece now visible elsewhere in Times Square. Perhaps theatergoers of frail constitution may be pardoned for disliking it. Hmm, interesting. Miss Booth has her back hair down, left to their own devices while their menfolk are either working at the office or deceiving their wives in the evening. Miss Booth's alley cats scratch and spit with considerable virtuosity. For the sake of practical playmaking, she introduces as her chief character, Mrs. Stephen Haynes, who loves her husband and is devoted to her home and children. But Mrs. Haynes discovers through a prattling manicurist that her husband has succumbed to the blandishments of an ambitious salesgirl, and she goes to Reno to divorce him. For two years, she lives in heartbroken retirement with her mother and children while her former husband does his best to tolerate her successor. In the last act, the first Mrs. Haynes learns that the second has fallen back into the old ways of infidelity, which is the chance she has been waiting for. Virtue outwits depravity at a conclave of all the hell hags in the powder room of a nightclub. And the implication of the final curtain is that the first Mrs. Haynes will have her old husband back as soon as the courts have freedom again. Mrs. Haynes' tribulations and her personal character bless the play with two or three poignant scenes which are adorned by the most graceful acting in Miss Gilmore's career and by Charita Bauer's brave and moving performance as the unhappy daughter of divorced parents. But The Women is chiefly a multi-scene portrait of the modern New York wife on the loose, spraying poison over the immediate landscape. Miss Booth has chosen amusing places for the background of her school for scandal, although the bathroom is not so illuminating as had been hoped for. She has also scribbled out some cleverly spiteful dialogue, arranged a scene of hair pulling fisticuffs between two contenders for general ignobility, and gone extensively into the physiology of the female of the species. Under Robert B. Sinclair's able direction, some excellent actresses give stingingly detailed pictures of some of the most odious harpies ever collected in one play. As the most malignant of the lot, Ilka Chase presides over the proceedings like the mother of all vultures, playing the part as it was written. She leaves no bone unpicked. With calculated industry, Miss Booth has thus compiled a workable play out of the withering malice of New York's unregenerate worldlings. This reviewer <laughs> Liked it. Wah, wah. And of course, Ilka played Sylvia. So there you go. Very interesting. From its initial production in 1936 to its revivals in the 70s and 90s, The Women has always received mixed, sometimes heated reviews. Luce's play has been most enthusiastically received when regarded as a hilarious social satire featuring outrageous caricatures of high society women who reel out witty, acerbic dialogue. During the 30s, however, the women was not without controversy. 
Scheduled productions in London and Providence, Rhode Island were canceled by authorities on grounds of immorality. Maddock, in the paper that I've been reading, characterized these efforts to censor the women when she commented, The play's unvarnished presentation of the female perspective on sex, birth, extramarital affairs, divorce, and dull husbands clearly offended a certain sector of its audience. However, the most substantial critical debate about the women concerns Luce's representation of women and female friendship. Anita Gates in What Is It About the Women noted, quote, whether Luce's play is dangerously misogynistic or subversively feminist has always been a matter of opinion, end quote. During the 30s, many critics of the women were quick to disparage Luce's representation of women as selfish, shallow, scheming cats, lacking in depth or compassion. But Luce has defended this view of her work by asserting that it was not her intention to suggest that the particular characters in this play represent all women. Rather, she put forth her aim was to ridicule a very specific segment of high society women, again, whom she despised. Since the 70s, critical discussions of the women pointedly address the question of whether it's feminist or misogynist. A number of critics interpreted the women as a societal critique addressing issues of both class and gender through an unromanticized representation of marriage as a socioeconomic institution. As Maddock observes, quote, Booth's women are corrupted by the materialistic and competitive values a moneyed and power-broking male world generates, end quote. Reviewers of several different revival productions of the women during the 90s and early 21st century applauded the play's timeless treatment of women's issues while acknowledging that it is in many ways dated. And we'll see if these cinematic adaptations change that. Stephen Wynn noted in a review entitled The Women Without Their Men that, quote, Luce touches lightly but deftly on a range of what are now known as women's issues. And then Wynne added, quote, Luce may not have written a play for the ages, but in refracting the spirit of her time with a satiric glint, the women casts a reflected light on the very notion of progress in the relations between the sexes, end quote. Wynne later opined, quote, at a time when feminism is encountering a fresh wave of backlash, this seemingly dated period piece picks up resonance without having to amplify it artificially, end quote. Other reviewers of recent revivals of the women commented on the play's representation of female friendship. Jane Blanchard noted in Conniving World of Women, quote, The idea of women being socialized from the cradle to gossip about and betray one another is painfully timeless, end quote. Alyssa Gardner commented in Women Fresh, Funny, and Feline that the women still resonates in the 2000s because, quote, feminist advances hardly have eliminated the territorial tensions and feline feuds that hamper our relationships with our fellow sisters, end quote. Gardner concluded that the woman ultimately provides a positive picture of female friendship, stating that it, quote, ultimately celebrates female camaraderie, even as it mocks our capacity for cattiness, end quote, which is what we see as we progress through the play and we obtain that community of sisters. In the late 90s and early 2000s, reviewers also praised the women from a feminist perspective in observing that the story ultimately demonstrates Mary's, quote, believable journey from generous and oblivious ignorance to wiser and more wicked self-awareness, as stated by Terry Byrne in Stage on Screen, The Women. Gates echoes that statement writing in New Age terms, The Women is about Mary's journey to empowerment. And Maddock likewise asserted, quote, the difference between Mary at the play's opening and the at the 
the play's conclusion is social and economic enlightenment. So if I focus now a bit on this feminist versus misogynist, I'm going to read some longer chunks from this paper by Maddock. When audiences in obedience to patriarchal responses see the behavior of Booth's characters merely as comic or distasteful, they fail to grasp the situation of the women, the causes of the reactive behavior, and the impossible roles into which they have been trapped at every level of society. They have consistently overlooked the socioeconomic dimension of Booth's play. The intensity of Booth's attack on the causes of female behavior has led them wrongly to view her play as an attack on women themselves. The fact that very few people have questioned the accuracy of Booth's portraits of Klein and venal women must give one pause. The response of critics to the women parallels the reaction of most audiences. In the appraisal of an anonymous reviewer in the Literary Digest, quote, America's number one woman hater is Claire Booth, who uses her typewriter as a scalpel to dissect the vanities and pomps of her sex, end quote. Joseph Mersand, who as late as 1949 insisted that women are incapable of writing great plays because innate practicality prevents them from achieving the idealistic heights men enjoy, praises Booth mainly for her negative presentation of women. He says, The woman is one of the frankest studies of the sex penned by one of its members. She had the courage, rare even in a male writer, to present women unfavorably, a deeply inbred, typically American respect for the sex, the save the women and children first idea, would always prevent any male writer from writing as bitterly as he might. Mersand and the male critics he cites too quickly take what is merely a convention of the comedy of manners, the presentation of despicable creatures for the moral enlightenment of the audience, for Booth's own feelings toward her gender. Applauding the truthfulness of Booth's portraits, Mersand clearly demonstrates the clouding of his critical vision by his all-too-obvious patriarchal bias. George G. Nathan condemns Booth for the very objectivity that Mersand applauded. He observes, quote, Claire Booth may be carelessly praised for achieving objectivity in a play like The Women, but it hardly constitutes sound appraisal of character and in some merely amounts to a melodramatically inverse sentimentality, end quote. Nathan thus concludes that the women is not finally satiric, but melodramatic and sentimental terms male critics have often applied to female writers. Even recent feminist critics such as Susan Carlson, who seem as guilty as earlier patriarchal critics in applying incongruent moral standards to Booth's play, tend to agree that Booth's attitude toward her female characters is as negative as Mersand and Nathan maintain. Carlson describes Booth's play not as a battle between the sexes, but as a battle within one's sex. The contempt Booth's women express for their sex and their sex roles, and sometimes for each other, are, however, not evidence of the playwright's own contempt for women, but of her attempt to portray realistically how women feel about themselves in a society, especially one in economic crisis, where most of the power is in the hands of men. Booth's apparent misogyny needs to be viewed in terms of a socioeconomic framework, one in which women are property and much of the language of the women is colored by metaphors of economics. This is made clear, for example, by Nancy's claiming that she is, quote, what nature shows, I'm a virgin, a frozen asset. Booth does not see women's inferiority as inevitable and natural as given in the constitution of the universe. Rather, she sees this inferiority as the result of actual social and economic relationships designed to maintain male superiority. 
Booth observes the effect of total economic or social dependence upon the behavior of all women, leveling her attack at materialistic values and patriarchal conventions. Without being didactic, Booth shows women in her audience how to stop being manipulated by their environment and how to control it. If her women want marriage for reasons of security in an insecure time, not merely for love, that's understandable. She just asks them not to gloss over their motives with the imprisoning platitudes of a past age. So even though Susan Carlson observed, in her opinion, that Booth's comedy, while being a play filled with women, is not a play for women or a woman's play, I would disagree with her. I think that Booth does something very interesting in how she presents these women. I think that she shows many dimensions of what marriage can be. She shows many reasons for why people may get married, both the male and female side of that marriage. She shows how it might be easy and difficult for the high classes, as well as easy and difficult for the lower classes. And I think quite rightly, as Maddox closes her paper in talking about that, if that is somebody's choice and how they are behaving and how they are seeking out marriage as a social or economic contract, perhaps we can't condemn them if they are honest about the reasons for why they are doing that or they're honest about their intentions for seeking marriage. And I think even though I didn't talk about infidelity because that certainly is a theme, I mean, it, it ties in with the marriage and the divorce, the fact that we have Sylvia and Miriam in particular, and Crystal, if, if we go there, having affairs, whereas the standard is that men were cheating on their wives, I think that also turns some gender roles around as well because we do primarily see men having affairs with younger women, but we don't often talk about women having extramarital affairs. And I think that's why some people felt very uncomfortable but that is a double standard because it's like we know that these men are having affairs but we don't talk about it but then if we actually show that and we also show well women are probably also doing the same thing and they should be not morally allowed to but just you know double standard thing that they're they're going to be doing things as well that makes people uncomfortable seeing that on stage and it reminds me of Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, which is a very feminist text because of Rebecca, who is not a great character, I will say. But the fact that she does, I mean, she does what she wants. She And she's almost, um, at that time, it seems like a male character and, and how free she is. And so some of these women, even though they're still referred to by their husband's name, are living their own life. Like Sylvia, it's it's sort of shocking to see Sylvia be someone who is having an extramarital affair. Though Peggy, I would probably be very shocked and disappointed if she were having one as well. So yeah, lots of critique. I think I'll probably still keep coming back to that as I have some of these final questions, but I feel like it is a feminist representation rather than misogynist. I think if you're just looking at the characters and what they're doing and how they're being portrayed and you're not looking at the surroundings or the times and the context and also the growth of the characters, then yeah, I can totally see that you would think it was misogynist. And I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with this, which is why in fact it, it was closed down in a couple places because they're seeing things that they don't want to see that they think don't happen and because women are the people doing it that makes them even more uncomfortable 
So I guess to wrap up this, I do have some questions, just like final points and things that I noticed as I was reading this play again. You know, talking about Sylvia, I wonder why she goes after Mary like she does. Is it just in her nature? And I think I think that it is because we see her quote unquote friendship with Crystal at the end and she sort of does the same thing. I feel like Sylvia is jealous of Mary and this is a point that was actually brought up during the bridge game at the beginning and she says no 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 (laughs) I am not jealous of her but I think that is something that is true though I don't know necessarily what aspect it is that she is jealous of Mary. I think Mary has potentially a higher social position than Sylvia does. We find out later on that many of the friends or the the people in the circle, uh, perhaps even a larger circle out in New York, sided with Mary after the divorce. I think Mary has a stronger character than Sylvia, and I think sometimes people do tend to not like other people when they see them as kind of quote-unquote good if they internally know that they are not the best of people, right? So Sylvia, I think, realizing that she's not too good of an egg, uh, looks at Mary and, and probably is trying to find any sort of fault with Mary. At one point, Sylvia actually says that Mary deserved what happened. This is Act 2, Scene 2. Oh, this was at Reno, yeah. And then Sylvia had found out that Miriam is the one who was the other woman. And, oh, Mary, how could you let her do that to me? Mary coldly says, I'm terribly sorry, Sylvia. The humiliation, you're on her side after all I've done for you. What have you done for me? I warned you, Mary bitterly. I'm not exactly grateful for that. Sylvia, hysterical. Oh, aren't you? Listen to me, you ball of conceit. You're not the object of pity, you suppose. Plenty of the girls are tickled to death. You got what was coming to you. You deserve to lose Stephen, the stupid way you acted. But I always stood up for you like a loyal friend. What thanks do I get? You knew about that woman and you stood by gloating while she... Which is very interesting. Yeah, so... Got what was coming to you, deserved to lose Stephen, the stupid way you acted. And I wondered, like, what did she do? How did she deserve that? And I think it's answered, really, the fact that she grew up privileged and she's very much insulated from life's problems. You know, if the Great Depression happened, was she really impacted by that? We know her husband, I think when she first married him, was probably not on the echelon than he was at the end, but he became successful. And she feels like, as as uh, Maddox points out, that she can lead a storybook existence as long as she plays by the rules. And she does. But I, perhaps her optimism, her idealism leads her astray. And so she, she's got blinders on almost in that she... Or perhaps she's veiled, maybe, just from seeing in the insidious nature of what the world is actually going through. And so... I think there is envy there in her character and then envy in her situation. And don't you love to see people who have everything kind of fall flat on their face? And so I think that's potentially connecting both of those two. Why did she deserve it? And then if Sylvia is jealous of her. 
as I said, uh, Sylvia later tells Crystal that everyone was on Mary's side. So I think even then she contradicts herself because that's later on in the play. So Sylvia is probably throwing out a bunch of people that they were all happy that she fell from her ivory tower. But in the end, it might have just been Sylvia, maybe an Edith. I do love that Miriam calls <laughs> Mary Queen at one point, which I found endearing. And this is in the 30s, so that's probably the first instance of that. Some of the things that I think continue to resonate today, even though this play is in the 30s, is, which I talked about, really the power of sex and women and women's bodies, Little Mary's understanding it. The model in the store during scene four, as I said, recognizes what that is. Beauty being a theme recognizes that. Miriam, she sees and understands the power of sex, and so does Crystal. This is Act 2, Scene 2 again. Gosh, everything happens in Reno, doesn't it? Miriam says, oh, Miriam's talking about her first true love, right? Remember that Miriam is already at the point of the journey where Mary will get to. But in the beginning, Miriam was just like Mary. It happened once, right, about losing her man. Got wise to myself after that. Look, how did I lose him? We didn't have enough dough to get married. I wouldn't sleep with him until he did. I had ideals. God knows where I got him. I held out on him. Can you believe it? I liked him a lot better than I ever liked anybody since. What did my Romeo do? Got himself another girl. I made a terrible stink. Why shouldn't I? I should. But what I ought not to have done was say goodbye. I was like you. Mary says, I don't understand. Then get a load of this. I should have licked that girl where she licked me in the hay. Miriam! That's where you win the first round. And if I know men, that's still Custer's last stand. Shocked you? You're too modest. You're ashamed. Okay, sister. But my idea of love is that love isn't ashamed of anything. Mary says, a good argument, Miriam. So modern. So simple. Sex the cause. Sex the cure. It's too simple, Miriam. Your love battles are for lovers or professionals. So yes, the power of sex, the power of beauty, power of the female body. I love that, I guess, connecting back to feminist versus misogynist, that Mary stays single all that time in those two years, even though there is societal pressure and internal pressure from her friends and mother to find a man. And I love that. And I think I love that for her. I think part of it is her character. She still holds on to some of those ideals. She still does want Stephen. Uh, I think love. She probably by now recognizes the financial security as well I mean that's that was implicit in the divorce that he was only going to pay enough money until the divorce went through so she's kind of on her own with that so in the back of her mind perhaps she's maybe holding out hope for Stephen but I love that she's not giving in to those sorts of pressures and we know that there's a stigma more so on divorced women than men but good on her and then I do also love, and this is just, you know, coming from a romantic and and a shipper, that Mary just wants Stephen to stay and says that this is the most important thing in a marriage to the Countess. This is Act 2, Scene 4. Mary says, lopsided amour is better than no amour at all. Flora, let him make a fool of you. Let him do anything he wants as long as he stays. He's taking the trouble to deceive you, and if he took the trouble, he really must have cared. So there's a lot of messed up stuff in that, right? I am still kind of wrapping my my head around, you know, adultery and cheating and things like that. Like, I don't necessarily understand the psychology of it because, especially now, just, you know, if you're with somebody, I feel like it's probably better to, to leave that person than, you know, not. But I think in, 
I'm beginning to understand that some of it is about security and not wanting to let that other thing go. And it's interesting that Mary is willing to drop her pride in this because she has a lot of pride in like not wanting to stay with Stephen if Stephen is still with Crystal. But here we see like she wants Stephen even if Stephen is is still deceiving her because that's how much. And she does talk about humbling love and that love is the most humble thing that there is. So I feel like it's it is really romantic and, and just you can see how much Mary loves Stephen. Though it is it's a huge character flaw. I do really like Mary as a character, but yes, she she totally has some flaws and I disagree with some things that she goes through. But that's just an interesting sentiment and I think it shows how much that she loves Stephen and she still holds on to some of her ideals of love at the very least, but now she's kind of dropping the guys on other things. She's sort of wised up about all of that. Something else that resonates is... In regards to the men, protecting the men's delicate sensibilities. Uh, in scene five, act one, Sylvia is talking to Peggy about her money. Peggy says, oh, Sylvia, why do you always insinuate that John is practically a miser? And Sylvia says, you have your own little income, Peggy, and what do you do with it? You give it to John. John makes so little. Peggy, you're robbing John of his manly sense of responsibility. You're turning him into a gigolo. A little money of her own she lets no man touch is the only protection a woman has. Then later on, also talking about Peggy back in the Reno section, so act two, scene two. Miriam says, what the hell are you doing here? Mary, John wanted to buy a car. Peggy says, with my money. John couldn't afford a car. But you could, Mary says. What was his is yours. What is yours is your own. Very fair. Peggy says, a woman's best protection is to keep a little money of her own. Mary says, a woman's best protection is the right man. Obviously, John isn't the right man, and Peggy will forget all about him in another month. And then, of course, Peggy has a baby. So this idea, I mean, Mary versus Peggy on financial independence, but the fact that let us protect the man and that his pride might get wounded if the woman is providing her own cash or income into the marriage because he wants to be the breadwinner. And this is, this reminds me just of feminism in general, and that when feminism was really reaching a height, I would say, you know, starting with the second wave, that they were being accused of ruining men's self-esteem, and that women maybe not wanting to marry, this was ruining men, women wanting to work full-time, this was ruining men's self-esteem, all of this stuff. And even now, I read some articles on the singledom of men, (laughs) And also what men are, crazy thoughts about what men are envisioning, you know, their like perfect woman as being. And it's back to being in the kitchen, basically being like young, inexperienced and in the kitchen. These are true things. So it's, it's cyclical for sure. But I feel like we see this stuff in the play and it very much resonates with what we have seen outside of the play in real life. In Act 1, Scene 6, when Maggie and Jane, again, lower economic status, they're the maids for Mrs. Haynes and Mrs. Moorhead. Maggie says she's indulging a pride she ain't entitled to. 
Marriage is a business of taking care of a man and rearing his children. It ain't meant to be no perpetual honeymoon. How long would any real husband last if he was supposed to go on acting forever like a red-hot Clark Gable? What's the difference if you don't love her? Jane says, how can you say that, Maggie? Maggie says that don't let her off her obligation to keep him from making a fool of himself, does it? Do you think he'll marry that girl, Jane says? When a man's got the habit of supporting some woman, he just don't feel natural unless he's doing it. So, yeah, just this idea. I said sign of the times in my notes there. But perhaps this idea has gone away a little bit, but I think it's still there. And uh, just this idea, when a man's got the habit of supporting some woman, he just don't feel natural unless he's doing it. And this is, again, some of the things I feel like in particular in the 50s when women were starting to break out more independently and want to have careers of their own, some men did not like this and wanted them to stay home and they wanted to be the breadwinner. And this is something that uh, occurs inadvertently, I guess I should say, if, if that's the best word subtly maybe subversively in workplaces because I worked at a place where men with families would be getting more income their salary would be higher than me even though if even if we were on like the same number of years same degree they would get more because they were quote-unquote supporting a family even though I was single living alone in a pretty expensive township which does not make sense i think it probably should have been equal (laughs) but anyways again some things i think definitely resonate from this play i've already spoken about scene seven in act one a bit but the the secretary and the notary discuss the amount of independence that they have on a woman's wage which take it or leave it is basically that argument and and we have that one character actually say she would rather be in a a decent or indecent home right so that she could be supportive so even if women are independent and you kind of have that strong feeling from it and and high regard for yourself it's not easy to live on that especially in the 30s here and from that conversation we know that mary is practically independent now because she's not being left with much once the divorce is final and then we also learn uh in the 30s that the precedent of children going to mothers is already in existence there's a line in the play when oh it's actually in that scene that i was just in because the way that Stephen talks about the children, it's almost like he's scared of the children being with him, that he would have to take care of them. No, Mary, there's the children. So this is when Jane is recounting what happened in that altercation between Stephen and Mary. And Jane actually follows up and, and says, why does she get so mad every time he says they've got to consider the children? If children ain't the point of being married, what is? And... That's Mrs. Moorhead's idea, and that is certainly something Mary says to little Mary about, oh, you know, the joy comes from the children. But I think, number one, the fact that right before, in the breath right before, he says that he is fond of her, which was a death knell of the relationship right there, and that she loves him, I think she would want herself to be the primary reason for her being marriage. But Mary ends up saying, Stephen, I want to keep the children out of this. I haven't used the children. I ain't asked you to sacrifice for the children. Yeah, so it's almost like when he asked that, I almost read it that, not sacrifice, but just like he would have to 
put more into the the relationship like maybe what if she left almost like a doll's house and he was responsible for it that would be something that would crimp on his his status and uh being with crystal and everything i don't know we don't see too much of him being a father if it's true that he was in the park with crystal when mary was in bermuda I don't know what to say about that. That is, you know, divorcees and things. They do like to warm up their children to a potential love interest. But a mistress, as he is also still married, seems like a poor choice. So I don't think very highly of Stephen. I mean, obviously, we are talking about a man who cheated on his wife. But... To do that seems a bit odd. So I don't know that he necessarily cares about the children. I don't know how often he actually ta- talks to the children. Little Mary seems to maybe think highly of him. But you also wonder what is he instilling in the son whose name I have now forgotten. If this is the model of a man and a husband, what is his son learning? And that, to connect to that, I do question the responsibility of mothers to daughters in this particular play. I think we see really poor examples. Mary with little Mary and then Mary with Mrs. Moorhead. And I think Mary with Mrs. Moorhead, that's her mother, is the more egregious of the two because Mrs. Moorhead is sane and something that Mary holds on because she did say like if only Stephen were to stay but Mrs. Moorhead is like this happens all the time you just kind of ignore it and you don't say anything she does give good advice about don't talk to your friends about this because that's going to be the worst for you pretend that you don't know which turns out to be I would say pretty good advice but the fact that she did not This wasn't something that she warned her about initially. Forewarned is forearmed, as we know. But also, maybe, I mean, maybe it's good. It's not like on your wedding night you would want your mother to talk about sex for the first time and that your husband in 10 or so years may begin cheating on you. But the fact that she lays it out so casually that, oh, your father cheated all the time. You just got to keep your mouth shut about it. And... This is so shocking to Mary, obviously, and that, yeah, you, you stick with it. It's like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Do you love Mr. Moorhead? I don't know. I, who even knows what was in in that marriage in particular? But I feel like there is a responsibility from mother to daughter to pass along information. And yes, I guess wait until it's necessary, but that's probably not the best advice to give. And I think there is a generational gap of standards, I think. And then we have Mary and Little Mary. And Little Mary does not want to be a girl because she knows what comes with it. She knows the power of sex, of women's bodies, that women give up their independence and their dreams and goals and ambitions to become married and then they're what supposed to be child rears and that's it and and keep house and this is not like she knows this is it is and then they become just these giant mouths walking around so she knows what it is and mary tries to dissuade her daughter from that and tell her oh well you know marriage is it's great to have children and you know there's ambit but she's she's saying all these things but not really proving them and in divorcing Stephen I think potentially 
that's a good model of behavior in that something has happened and she's standing up for herself and she's also taking care of her children. But then she does go back to Steven. (laughs) Her character has changed and she has sort of lost her independence. We don't know what Mary looks like once she presumably re-enters that marriage a second time. If she keeps on with her independent streak, then perhaps she will be a better model for Mary. I just I just don't know. Because some of those conversations, especially about like being divorced, I, I think she has a good conversation with her and that, you know, just some people fall out of love and everything. She lays it out okay for her daughter, but kind of mixed messages. So I'm hoping that Mary takes what she has learned poorly from Mrs. Moorhead and is able to be a better model for little Mary so that the information that is passed down from generations gets a bit clearer and gets a bit better for them. Because that's just something that I I wonder about is just what is our responsibility to the next generation? And do you warn them in advance of these things, even though some of these things may not happen to them? Or do you wait? I mean, are you proactive or retroactive? But now that little Mary has sort of, even though she may not understand everything, she's been almost front row to all this stuff going on. Hopefully she has a better idea. And then growing up in World War II, that'll be interesting to see what that is like. And women, of course, gain a bit more. But then, oh man, probably married in the 50s. She's going to have a little, uh, a tough uphill bad battle for sure. But I, I, yeah, I kind of have faith that little Mary will, will make some good decisions. It's interesting to compare Edith in Act 2, Scene 1 with Mary as mothers. I mean, Edith gives birth and she immediately talks negatively about children and, and the loud noises and she's like smoking a cigarette. And then you have Mary who is very loving of her children and does worry about them and their while within this marriage, Stephen and that love or the fondness or the losing that love is at the forefront of her mind. She does always consider the children and then she has that relationship with Mary and, and has conversations with her. So just those two, the fact that Edith is, right, as a child bear, I mean, she's basically, what, a broodmare? Or I think in the in the cinematic adaptation, she is represented by a cow, if, if I remember correctly. But just the fact that, yeah, she's there for breeding, which is awful. And then that is how she acts. That whole final scene is actually really quite hilarious with what's going on. But when Mary comes in, to I guess the rooftop casino and Crystal is there and Mary says such a lovely party I was afraid you weren't coming and then it says introducing Crystal and Miriam Sylvia Mrs. Fuller Mrs. Haynes Mrs. Fuller Mrs. Fuller <laughs> uh, this is absurd Miriam says charmed charmed so there's yes there's a lot of stuff going on in that one but it is a very funny play which is why I enjoy it I like how all the characters have pros and cons some of them are more cons than pros like Edith and Sylvia I don't want to mess with them Peggy brings out some interesting ideas about financial independence and sharing everything Nancy of course the forever independent woman which 
Of course, I'm pretty sure she is Jada Pinkett Smith's lesbian character in the 2000s version, which, of course, the unmarried version would be that. Uh, We can talk about that when I cover it. And Miriam being someone who has, she's wised up and she's at the point where Mary uh, ends up evolving and that two of them are two parts of the same identity, basically. And then, you know, Mary and and Miriam being very, I think she's pretty cool, um, but she makes some choices again that I want to make. And then Mary being just, I feel like she's a very likable character. You want to support her. Yes, she's at the top and she's very sweet. I don't think that she ever lords it over anyone, but I guess she's just someone that you want to see her downfall if you're Sylvia. But then she makes some questionable choices. And just, I guess, finishing up, this is from Liz Brent again. By the end of The Women, Mary has come to the conclusion that it is worth it to her to compromise her ideals, swallow her pride, and fight to get back the man she loves, even knowing that her love is lopsided. Just before going out to the casino roof for the final battle with Crystal, Mary reads aloud from a book about love. Quote, When love beckons to you, follow him, though his ways are hard and steep, though his voice may shatter your dreams as the north wind lays waste the garden. End quote. Mary is willing to suffer losing her pride and having her ideal shattered about love in order to hang on to the husband she still loves, even if he no longer loves her. And that could be painful. That could be painful. We can only hope that Stephen, now knowing what it is like, and I think a word was tolerate his marriage with uh, Crystal, now knowing what it is like without Mary, perhaps he will... Maybe he'll grow more fond. Maybe he'll be more appreciative. Or if a man strays, will he stray again? I don't know. But yes, this play, there, there's just so many things to talk about. There are all these themes and styles that we can talk about. The characters are really complex. And I think that it is feminist for sure and we'll continue to revisit that as we look at those three cinematic adaptations though you know someone could just look at it and be like this is terrible how you are treating women and portraying them this is misogynist but I think again if we look at the times that this was and the women different the differing ideas of marriage and love for the different women and how they treat each other and marriage and the men I think that it flips a lot of gender roles on their head. The fact that even though women's bodies are the main weapon to secure men, men are the goods. Men are the objects. And that doesn't often happen. It's usually women are the objects that are trying to be won or are sought after. So... I probably rambled through all that. I hope that it (laughs) makes sense a little bit, but there's just a lot to talk about here. And yeah, thank you for being along for the ride with me talking about this subject matter. And I'm sure I will think of more things as I look at the cinematic adaptations as well. There's, yeah, so much to talk about. And again, yeah, using Encyclopedia, using uh, Liz Brent's critical essay on the women, and then Mary Maddox's Social Darwinism in the Powder Room, Claire Booth's The Women. Those were my three sources, so I thank you to those. Now, I am currently crafting my rubric, so I am going to continue that, and that is how I will judge or grade the adaptations to see if it really holds up, and I am... Still working on that, so I'll let you know next episode. But before I go, 
It's time for Operator, Operator, I Have a Call to Make. So these are two posts on my season finale of season one of Dear Reader. First up is from Siskoid. Siskoid says, I have, of course, not seen the musical, but thanks to National Theatre Live, I did see the 2015 stage adaptation. I didn't like it much, but I thought you'd like to see the capsule review I wrote at the time. And here it is. There is a type of theater that really annoys me, and I'm afraid National Theatre Live's 2015 adaptation of Jane Eyre falls in that category. Plays that want to be movies. The chief sin of these plays is providing a continuous score, which I find trite outside of musical theater, even if the production is lavish enough to have an orchestra on stage with the actors. I gnash my teeth when the other gimmicks come out. Freeze frames and slow motion and other effects. In Sally Cookson's Jane Eyre, there are even more gimmicks. Dynamic lighting, cues, abstract set designs, fire effects, actors voicing Jane's thoughts, lyrical dance, pop songs and hymns sung on stage, people playing animals, and okay, enough already. A couple of these would have been clever. All of them together is particularly exhausting. It's too bad because some of it is quite clever, but overall too gimmicky for me. And here's the thing. Novels can do things that plays aren't very good at. And adaptation of a novel means a certain level of sacrifice. This production doesn't want to sacrifice anything. I struggled through the first act showing us Jane's life from infant to child to schoolgirl, adults playing kids for a good hour, and the play doesn't start to be interesting until Rochester shows up and Felix Hayes gives a fun performance in the role. If they'd boiled it down to Jane's life at Thornfield, integrating her earlier life in stories told through dialogue, I would probably have been less impatient with it. Final rating, humbug. Well, I will say, even though I've not seen this, that a lot of these, I probably not a lyrical dance or pop songs, hymns I could imagine because there's, you know, some church scenes, but fire effects, the actor's voicing Jane's thoughts because she does have a lot of narrations and obviously she talks to the audience. I can see that. So I guess I would agree with you, maybe some, but not others, but those are just two that I would pick out. And now for the congratulatory comment on you finishing this maxi-series. I will miss my monthly dose of pod lit. You did an outstanding job with it and brought the material to life even for those with more cursory knowledge of Jane Eyre. You had some surprising choices in there, which I loved. Season 2 is going to be a play? Hmm, I really wonder what it could be. And I'm excited to find out. As a network insider, I guess I'll be among the first. Now I'm trying to think of what plays have enough adaptations to warrant this treatment. Many of Shakespeare's, of course. The importance of being earnest, perhaps? Cyrano de Bergerac? But maybe not if you take out the original French. Peter Pan? Or maybe it's a musical, as per your predilections. I'll bide my time, but again, congratulations. I loved the trip to Thornfield. And thanks for listening. I am happy to also have guested on Siskoid's look into Hamlet, which I'm sure there'll be an audio plug for that in the coming episodes. And then finally from Brian Linton, I checked in with my brother and it turns out that he did not get to see the Jane Eyre musical. He ended up on childcare duty <laughs> while his wife went to see the show. I didn't get any details, but she enjoyed it. Thank you for this episode and for the show. I'm glad to hear that you were renewed for a second season. Yeah, I mean, it took some bribery at Fire and Water, but they did renew me. Okay, and I think that is it for this look into the gossipy and catty lives of the women in high-class society in New York City. If you'd like to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network and really give the finger to Edith Potter, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, where you can make a one-time or monthly contribution and unlock various rewards, including getting name-checked on this or any other network show of your choice, and perhaps you'll become the best friend of Mary Haynes. Support the network and harvest the good fruits.
Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever podcasts can be found. Send questions or comments to BatgirlToOracle at gmail.com. Don't question it. And follow the show at BatgirlToOracle on Twitter. Thank you, dear listeners, for lending your ears to this show. And until next time, pray do read a book. Uh, you know.